Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and this is part two of an interview that I did with Dan Wallace on the text of the New Testament. We're going to talk about some major variants that show up in the transmission of the text and finish our conversation off with a summary on why we can trust that the text that we have is reliable. I hope you enjoy this episode. So I'm hearing you say that there there are different categories and the vat 99.8% of these uh, vari- of the 4 to 500,000 variants that there are are not they're either not meaningful and not viable in other words they're clearly you know added uh, later or they might potentially change the meaning but also they're they've clearly been added later they're not right. just not viable um, right. they don't belong there but then there are some like you said that either aren't very meaningful, but they are viable. Um, yeah, certain spellings, like the name John in Greek has two N's in the middle or one N, Ioannes. Yep. Every time you see the name John, you got some manuscripts with one N or two. And by the way, there are certain apologists who have counted textual variants a wrong way. Mm-hmm. Ever since a book came out in 1963, what, they, what they've done is they've said, uh, you count a variant by how many, uh, you, you, the wording, times how many manuscripts have that wording yeah that's not valid Mm. you count a texture variant by just the wording so it doesn't matter if there's a thousand manuscripts that have it yep or one manuscript that has it Mm -hmm. that's one texture variant Variant. yeah 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 and then but then there's there's this last category that you talked about with like the number of the beast and you've been a part of translation committees where you guys are sitting around with these things and you have to make a decision what are we going to say to put into our translation of this text. And those are the ones that, as you guys go around and talk about it, where you're like, hey, we think that this is the closest to the original. But talk to us a little bit about some major variants. I mean, there's two of them that come to mind that are really obvious, like John 7:53 to 8:11, where if you're reading, like if you have access to a Bible right now and you open it to that passage, more than likely, the translation committee has put that section of scripture into a bracket or have noted it in some way to right. say, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have this section in it. So, And then the other one I'm thinking about is the longer ending of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. So talk to us about some of those major variants. Because, I mean, I mean, honestly, you start talking about this stuff and people are like, wait a second. That's my favorite story in the Bible, you know, the 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 woman caught in adultery. Yeah, not the Mark 16. That typically isn't. Really yeah, happen. Mark 16 is more like people scratch their head and go, hey, I hope that's not original, yeah, you know. Yeah, but Snake handlers in West Virginia. I, I like know, right? Handlers. Yeah, I hear you. But talk to us, especially about the adulterous woman, and how should we handle that? Well, these two passages are far and away the longest textual variants we have in the New Testament. Both are 12 verses long. The next largest context variant we have is two verses. Mm -hmm. And we only have about two dozen that are one or two verses. Then all the rest of them are parts of a verse, phrases, individual words, or just letters. Mm -hmm. So people think the, you know, when you hear about this, uh, you think, oh my gosh, do we have all these kinds of variants that are this huge? No, we have two Mm -hmm. this big. Mm -hmm. Uh, The story of the woman caught in adultery I, I agree. That's my favorite passage that's not in the in Bible. The Bible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. It's a great text. It yeah. speaks of the forgiveness of Jesus, his tenderness in, in situations like that, and dealing with uh, hypocrites. But uh, the question I have is, is that not taught elsewhere in mm-hmm. the Gospels? Mm-hmm. Of course it is. Yeah, right. He forgives sinners, and he addresses hypocrites harshly, uh, constantly. Uh, otherwise, we'd have some problems seeing who the real Jesus was. But 
In terms of the evidence, about 20% of all of our Greek manuscripts do not have the story of the woman caught in adultery. Mm. Our earliest don't have it. We don't have any church father that, uh, that has a commentary on it for a thousand years. Wow. And uh, uh, the, the versions, uh, most of those don't have lectionaries. You, you, you don't have manuscripts that have commentaries. Uh, typically do not have it. manuscripts without commentaries uh, frequently will. But when you get through the first eight centuries, we've only got four or five manuscripts that do have it. Our earliest, like P66, uh, an early papyrus from the uh, about AD 200, it lacks it. Mm -hmm. P75, not quite the same text, but they're, they're similar from a different area, also lacks it. Uh, the, the oldest complete Greek New Testament, Codex Sinaiticus or Olaf, found at St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt and now at the British Library, also lacks it. So does Codex Alexandrinus, 5th century, Codex Vaticanus. You go on and mm -hmm. on and yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. And then you look at the internal evidence, the syntax, the style, uh, there's vocabulary, all sorts of things that just don't it's look like John. Different, yep. And you also look at it as a floating text. It doesn't just occur here. Yep. It's in six different pl places. One place is after Luke 21, 38. Mm. And it actually fits with Luke's style far better than yeah, John's. Yeah, a little better, yeah. Uh, sometimes scribes just put it at the end of the Gospels. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I saw one manuscript that had, it did not have the texture variant. This was in Albania. I mean, it didn't have the story of the woman caught in adultery. But a later scribe came along, and he was so furious that it didn't have it. He writes out on paper, not parchment, but he writes out the story of the woman caught in adultery and stitches it into that next page <laughs> with five big stitches. Wow. It's an obvious, not a delicate operation. It's an angry thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then on the back of that, you have some child writing out the story of the woman caught in adultery again. Wow. This may be a pastor, a local pastor, who's complaining about it. Yeah. Hey, he left this out. I got to put it in here. Yeah, because it's my favorite story, too. <laughs> you know? What are you guys doing? Yeah. Now you get to Mark 16, and the situation is significantly different. We have far more evidence that that's authentic than we do the story of the woman caught in adultery. Mm. Our oldest two manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus from the fourth century, lack it. Uh, but the syntax, the vocabulary, the style don't fit. Internal, yeah. There are other uh, endings to Mark's gospel, and that particular ending uh, has a resurrection appearance by Jesus to the disciples. If Mark intended to end his gospel at 16.8, says the angel told the women to go and tell the disciples, meet Jesus in Galilee, mm -hmm and they did nothing for they were afraid, period, in a book, what a downer. Yeah. Or is it something that says you readers need to step into the place of these disciples yeah. and, and move on with Jesus? Yeah. So you also have, uh, just briefly, uh, in the early fourth century, you have Eusebius saying, I, I hardly find this in any manuscripts, mm. that long ending. Yeah, yeah. Towards the end of the fourth century, almost at the fifth, uh, Jerome says, I hardly find this in any Greek manuscripts. You may have seen it in some others. But by the time we get to the 6th century, Victor of Antioch, who wrote the first commentary on Mark, he says, I see it in about half the manuscripts. So this shows that what we have today in our manuscripts, about the majority of them, hardly represents what was going on in the early centuries. Right, right, right. And yet, most Christians would say, if you had to make a choice between these two passages, hands down, the story of the woman caught in adultery, yeah. that goes in. Long in your mark goes, goes out. out. Yeah, but that's an emotional. Yep, it uh, totally baggage. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, the evidence against both of them is very, very strong. And as much as I'd like them to be in the text, especially the story of the woman caught in adultery, I have to go on the basis of evidence, not yep. emotion. That's good, man. It's really good. Let me just uh, address that question about should we be concerned about these variants? 
In terms of the significant ones, how significant are they really? Bart Ehrman, in his book, Misquoting Jesus, uh, a man I've debated three times, uh, just a year ago he came out, he moved away from agnosticism, and now he's an atheist. But he's a, a Wheaton graduate, went to Princeton Seminary, got his master's and doctorate there under Bruce Metzger, a fine evangelical scholar. And uh, Bart uh, said, in Misquoting Jesus, in the paperback version on page 252, <laughs> Sounds like you've you've uh, you talked about this before. Yeah, yeah just every time <laughs> just I times, every time yeah. I debate him. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, he was asked by the publishers. Uh, so, uh, why do you disagree with Professor Metzger about uh, the cardinal doctrines being affected by these texture variants? Hmm. He said, "I don't disagree with him. Yeah. Cardinal doctrines are not jeopardized by any of the texture variants." So, I'm telling you, this is my source. I agree with him, uh, Bart, on this particular point. No essential doctrine is jeopardized by any textual variant. Mm -hmm. However, we do want to know what the Bible says. Right. For example, in Romans 5.1, we have a really significant variant. It either says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, yep. or let us yeah, have peace with God. Yeah. It's a single letter difference in Greek, but it makes a, a big difference in how we read that text and how we apply it, yep. So, and how we interpret it especially. No cardinal doctrine is affected, but there are a number of things, and, and our, our task is both to interpret the text correctly, and also, because I believe the Bible is inspired, I want to get back to the original text right. as much as possible. Right. Only the original is inspired. Yeah, and I think it's important to, to note here as well, because a lot of times in these conversations I have with people, there's a, well, you don't have the original text. They keep saying this over and over again. And and I'll, I like to tell them, no, the, the original text is there, but it's the original text plus the additions that have happened over time. So the, the discipline of textual criticism is to trim the fat off the top so that you're left with what was original. So people are like, well, y'all don't have the original text. And I'm like, no, 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 we do. It's it's still there. It's it's our job to discern what, what these scribal tendencies have been over, over the years and to try to, as best we can, explain the differences by saying, oh, this scribe is from this place who has a tendency to do this. And also with the external and internal evidence, this makes the most sense that it's original. And so, again, when, we're, when we say we're trying to get back to the original text, we're not trying to get back to something that has disappeared and is now reappearing. It's always been there. What we're trying to do is to figure out, okay, to the best of our ability with the, with the information and the evidence that we have, what do we need to trim off so that we're left with what was originally written? I think it's good. I think in, in people's minds, they get confused between the original manuscripts and the original, the original text. Yeah, yeah, the right. original text of the original right. wording. We don't have the original manuscripts, right. but what was written on them, we still, we still have. That's right. And, and we find it in the manuscripts somewhere. I would, I would like to say we find it in our Greek New Testament either above or below the line, right. the line that indicates the footnotes of the texture variants. Mm -hmm. Here, here's some evidence for that that I think is significant. In the last 150 years, uh, papyri became a huge player in uh, recovering the wording of the original text of the New Testament. Ancient papyri, these were dug up in, in Egypt uh, in, in a number of places where it's above the water table. And uh, we got papyri that go back to the second century mm -hmm. uh, of the Greek New Testament. Uh, the numbers continue to increase. Right now, we're at 139, 140 papyri, so it's mm -hmm. not very many. Mm -hmm. uh, they're all fragmentary, but some of them are very, very large uh, fragments, like 86 complete, uh, almost complete leaves 
of an original 104-leaf manuscript that had Paul's letters Hmm. uh, written about AD 200. We still have that, P46, and and, uh, the vast majority of it is is intact and, and frankly, easy to read. Mm -hmm. So, we have these manuscripts, and yet, with all the papyri and the discoveries, which become collectively our earliest extant, that that means still in existence, we know where they are, uh, witnesses to the Greek New Testament, there has not been a single reading in any papyrus in the last 150 years that's a new variant that has emerged where scholars say, this must be authentic. Yeah, yeah, good. What yep. they do is they confirm other readings that we already knew no, about yep. to be authentic. Yep. So, it's just a matter of it's either above the line or below the line, yep. what we consider yeah. to be authentic. And I, I think that's a huge point mm. that we just, most scholars believe we don't need to do conjecture, guess. That's what right. the original word is. It's just in the manuscript someplace. Yep, that's right. And th- just so you guys can, I'll give a little bit of context here. So, he keeps referencing papyrus. Uh, and the, the reason that uh, the papyri manuscripts are so important is because the early church didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> and the, the common paper back then were, would be made out of these uh, papyrus plants that grew along the Nile was primarily. But they would take these and, and make them. Uh, kind of lay them over each other and put them down and they would use that to, that was just common paper back then. And so a lot of our earliest ones, because to kill an animal and skin it and use that parchment or the animal skin to write on is really expensive. And so these papyrus uh, fragments are typically the earliest ones that we have. And the, the problem with them though, is that they become brittle and fall apart kind of in your hand. And so we don't have as many of them because they don't last as long as the animal skin does. But that's what Dan's uh, referencing when, when he's talking about that. What's interesting, just a little quick side note, for the papyri, they use a carbon-based ink, and it is still black. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm working through uh, three of the most important papyri right now. They're going to get published uh, uh, in about a year, and uh, working with two other uh, scholars at CSNTM. The text is largely pretty easy to read. The parchment manuscripts, which come later, those are on animal skins, and even though they, they try to bleach it, it starts to turn brown, mm-hmm. and they can't use a carbon-based ink. It doesn't stick to the, the, the skin. Got it. They have to use an iron-based ink, which rests. Yeah. So, it's basically brown on brown. Yeah. Even though it lasts longer, sometimes it's quite a bit harder, it's harder to read, to read. than the papyri, yeah, yeah. which is older. Yeah. Very <laughs> ironic. It's crazy. And then also, so I, I went uh, to the on the Albania expedition um, in 2007, and when we were there, we were one of the primary manuscripts we were looking at was uh, 43. Yeah. And when they wrote on animal skin, they would write in ink, but then they would put it down and pick up like a, a silver or a gold. can't remember what color it was, but they would write for the names of God. But then when they would close the codex, the ink would like eat into the other side of the page. So now, 1600, uh, 1500 years later, when you open it, it's hard to read because it show, both pages are showing up on either side because it's been closed for so right. long, you know? And so, you have to deal with this kind of thing as well. There aren't too many to purple this codices, but this is a, a kind of a royal one where you take the parchment and you dip it in purple dye. And what's interesting on, on this one is all of them are Gospels manuscripts. Mm-hmm. And the gold letters, everything is written in silver letters, actually, everything on that. Codice, That's right, yeah, yeah. Except for four words. God, Lord, Jesus, and Christ. Those are always written in gold. That's cool. Yeah. What does that tell you about what the scribes know, thought yeah, right. about who Jesus Christ yep, was? Yep. And very early on. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of people ask me, what what Bible do you use, you know, as an equipping guy or whatever? And my answer to them is it depends on what I'm doing. So if I'm translating, then obviously I use the critical text. Um, I think the Nestle Allen's is the 28th edition. Is that right? That they're on right now? And then... So I'll just do that. But then if I'm, if I'm studying, I'll nor- I normally start with the Net Bible. It's the New English Translation. It's free online. And the great thing about the Net Bible that Dan was working on is that they make translation choices, but then they explain in the footnotes why. And I've never seen a Bible with that many footnotes. <laughs> the footnotes are like, any Bible the history. footnotes have, is like, Three quarters of the page, you know, and uh, but it's great because it gives me a good baseline uh, starting point to understand what the issues are. What do I have to deal with as someone who's going to teach this? But then if I'm reading devotionally, I'll read the Living Bible or uh, I love the NIV to read. That's I memorize scripture out of the NIV because it flows better. There's there's choices that the committee makes to smooth over some stuff so it's more readable. And so it totally depends on what you're doing to answer that question. That's that's a good response to that. The King James Version, I think, is one that anybody who's a native English speaker should own. It gives us so many of our idioms. It's, it's a, the only literary monument ever produced by a committee. And it's, it's great literature, and it's a pretty darn accurate translation. Mm. Their goal, though, was not accuracy. Their goal was elegance. And so they would change the wording to reflect this, and at times it, it wasn't real accurate. Uh, but it's it's not a bad translation at all. Sometimes it's a little bit difficult to read, but I, I recommend every Christian whose native tongue is English own a King James Bible. Mm. However, there are more accurate translations. It was essentially, essentially based on three Greek New Testament manuscripts. There were more that were used, but there were three that were the basis for it, all of them late. And uh, then uh, the, the King James has gone through several revisions, uh, three major ones, 100,000 changes, almost all of them rather minor, mm-hmm. just spelling changes. But the King James Bible, when you look at modern translations, there are, uh, in terms of the Greek text that it stands behind, there's about 5,000 differences in terms of how scholars have viewed what the original text says. How many of those are important? Most of them are not. But modern uh, translations are now based on much better evidence. Mm. Uh, it goes back almost a thousand years older. And you have three manuscripts, actually Erasmus, who produced the Greek text that essentially stands behind the King James Bible. Uh, he, he worked with eight manuscripts, but three he relied on heavily. Today, we have 5,861 Greek right. manuscripts. <laughs> yeah. We have almost a thousand times as many yeah, manuscripts. Yeah. So, yeah. why would we want to go back there? And the original preface to the King James did not say, this is the end all, the final copy of the Word of God. It talks about as no, more evidence comes out, we're going to continue to revise and more translations are going to be done. So, use the King James. It's a great translation. But if you want an accurate one, you need to get something like the ESV, which is a, an understated elegance translation. I, I like it very much. Or the NIV 2011 Mm-hmm. which I think has the the best textual basis now out there. Uh, another one is the Net Bible that I was uh, I, I worked on rather heavily. Mm-hmm. Uh, it hasn't been revised. There's a few changes, about a dozen or two dozen places we changed the wording based on recent evidence. Yeah. But uh, those three, I think, are, are just terrific translations. Yeah. NIV 2011, ESV, and the Net Bible. I, I would say, too, as far as the variants go, one of the reasons that, well, actually the reason that there are so many variants is because we have so many manuscripts. It's not even funny when you try to com- 
compare these things. And I know when I started to get into this, people asked me, especially after I came back from that expedition, like, hey, you just kind of did some study on some, some original uh, looking at manuscripts. Did this challenge your faith at all? You know, and I was like, man, the exact opposite happened because I'm sitting here looking at, you know, we had a, a late Byzantine, 13th century Byzantine manuscript. And, I, and you compare that to a 6th century where it's almost a thousand years removed. And you look at it, and the thing that stuck out to me was how remarkably the same they are. And that, I think that's what gets missed. And as we, as we talk about all of the differences and variants and the types of variants, we want to be honest about it because you know, we, we want to follow the truth where it leads. But at the same time, I, what needs to get hammered into you guys that are listening is I think it's n- nothing short of a miracle the fact that this text has been transmitted over thousands of years and it is so remarkably the same. So I wanted to make that point. That's a great point to make. If if I can add uh, just an anecdote here. Please do. At one of the uh, libraries I was at, it was a Muslim was the guy who was uh, bringing the manuscripts out. And uh, I kept pointing to John 1.1 in every single gospel's manuscript he brought out. And I read it. I said, see, the wording is exactly the Mm -hmm. same. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what the century. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mm-hmm. And I said, this goes all the way back to manuscripts in the second century. There's, there's no changes. I mean, there's, there's inconsequential ones in a couple of manuscripts, and that's it. Right. Uh, but uh, every single manuscript, no matter the date, no matter the, the translation, always says Jesus is God in John 1.1. Mm-hmm. And that's true for the major passages about our, our major doctrines. And so he, he began to question his own Muslim faith because yeah. it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, so there's no, there's no manuscript that says like, you know, Frank died on the cross, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's that. Uh, Brian. Um, yeah. Or, Brian. or the life of Brian. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of memories that come flooding into my mind in the life of Brian. But, but uh, I think that's such an essential part of this conversation is to get back to Ehrman's er- quote himself of essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament, um, to quote him directly. And I- I'm just sitting there going, hey, the- we have even look, even if you strip away all of the places in the New Testament where the variants are meaningful and viable, what you're left with is Orthodox Christianity. None of them are affected by that. And so I think we have to be honest in, in two different ways. One, because a lot of times people hear this and go, oh, gosh, why well, you need to toss the baby out with the bath? Why well, right. just toss it out? You know? And I'm like, whoa, 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 that is not responsible. Let's avoid the attitude of what I've heard you say, total despair, because there's no reason to do that. Like we have so much, this mountain of evidence. And then I think we need to avoid the other uh, attitude, which is to put our foot in the ground and be like, we're absolutely certain that that we know this is exactly what it says in those areas where variants are meaningful and viable. Because to be honest, you know, there's room for discussion. You know, it's kind of like a first and second edition of a book by an author. Uh, he's not going to change his opinions over time. And you have the first edition of Tolkien. You have a second edition, and they're going to say essentially the same thing. Is it Elvish? Or elfish, you know, you know, those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, right. Well, Tolkien, he was deeply concerned about that and told the editors, you better get this right. Yeah. But I don't think anybody else in the world thought that was important. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I'll leave with this. There are references to Jesus's deity prior to the fourth century that we have manuscripts that testify to this, and we still have them today. Right. And these are the five. John 1.1, 1, 1, the word was God. 
John 20, 28, where Thomas exclaims, mm-hmm. my Lord and my God. Romans 9, 5, the Messiah who is God over all. Um, Hebrews 1, 8, your throne, O God, will last forever. 2 Peter 1, 1, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so there's a, uh, again, there's all kinds of conspiracies out there that people made Jesus God. And I'm just like, hey, um, oh, as I've heard you say before, Dan, you know, there's a lot of weight that people give to presumption, you know? Yeah. Um, but like you've heard you say, hey, an ounce of evidence is worth a pound of presumption. And uh, the, the evidence overwhelmingly points to the fact that the deity of Jesus is not something that people conspired to come up with and grant to him in the fourth century at the Council of Nicaea, but actually was part of this early stream of orthodoxy about Jesus that goes all the way back to him. Absolutely. Right? And, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's early. You can't say that uh, it's a nonsense. It's a stupid statement that some say that. Constantine invented the deity of Christ. Yeah, well, if he did, he must have been 175 years old because we have evidence long before. Him. Yeah, totally, totally. Dan, thank you for your time. This has been so much fun. I mean, honestly, and we'll continue this conversation over lunch probably, but uh, we could we could go on and talk about this for a long time. But uh, thank you for your expertise, what you're doing. Please uh, check out CSNTM, and if the Lord leads you to give to them, just know your money will be going to the preservation of the Word of God. Thank you for listening to the Equipping Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Dan Wallace. Please check out his website at csntm.org. And if you like what you're hearing, then subscribe, tell your friends about it. And if you have any questions or suggestions about topics that you would like for us to cover, then email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Peace.